Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics brought to you by swan.com. Have you wondered about the crossover between Bitcoin and nuclear energy? Today, nuclear Bitcoiner Ryan joins me to talk about Bitcoin and nuclear energy. We talk about a range of things around the updates in nuclear technology and energy that most people probably aren't aware of unless they are following the industry more closely. We talk about SMRs, nuclear waste and safety concerns, and of course, nuclear energy and the crossover with Bitcoin mining. This show is brought to you by CoinKite.com. As you know in Bitcoin, not your keys, not your coins. CoinKite make hardware products that make it easy for us to secure our coins using hardware devices, such as the tap signer, which is a cheaper device using NFC, and you can tap to sign with apps such as Nunchuck on your phone, all the way up to the cold card, Mark IV, which is the latest and greatest that they offer, which offers far higher grade of security with multiple secure elements, more RAM, faster CPU, and it's an extremely reliable device that you can use in all kinds of configurations. You can just directly plug it to your computer and use it with Sparrow Wallet or Electrum or Spectre Desktop, or you can use it in an air-gapped mode with an SD card, and you can ferry that information back and forth between your cold card and your computer. So for those of you interested to upgrade your security with hardware devices, go to CoinKite and use the code Levera for a discount on your cold cards. For those of you in or near Europe, Plan B Forum Lugano is coming up October 20th and 21st. So as you might know, Lugano is a city in Switzerland and they are taking on Bitcoin adoption. The mayor actually goes around talking about Bitcoin and he can spend Bitcoin. You can see videos of him spending lightning. So they've got an awesome forum and it's coming up with awesome speakers like Nick Zabo, who is a legend in the space, and he will be speaking with an original new contribution about his work on Bitcoin and so social scalability. There are a range of speakers coming, people like Adam Back and Paolo Arduino and so many more. There'll be a main stage, a lightning and peer-to-peer stage, as well as masterclasses where you can learn skills about self-custody. And remember, with Lugano, they actually have hundreds of merchants in town that you can spend lightning with, whether that is cafes, restaurants, bars, and more. So go to planb.lugano.ch and find out more and mark it in your calendar for October 20th and 21st. And now onto the show with Nuclear Bitcoiner. Ryan, great to meet you in, uh, and I'm interested to chat a little about it. I know you obviously go by the name Nuclear Bitcoiner. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about that and what's in a name? I found myself in a niche right where nuclear power and Bitcoin intersect each other because as I started to learn about Bitcoin, I thought it would be a really good idea to start mining Bitcoin with nuclear power because it is the most abundant and dense source of power that humanity is capable of harnessing thus far. And one of our greatest liabilities in the nuclear industry is that sometimes we generate so much power that it becomes a liability because there isn't enough customers to sell it to. Then we end up with negative prices, curtailment, and any number of, uh, yeah, just negative outcomes. And I... I'm pretty confident that Bitcoin mining can fill Fantastic. that space. Yeah, and I think that's probably I think that's probably the key point, isn't it? Yeah, that's it, it's interesting you mentioned that key point that because it overproduces, uh, and I guess this is one of those concepts where I've read that just the way the electricity grid works is you can't overproduce; it all has to be matching. And I guess that's the key concept that you're getting out there. Um, and we'll get into all of this as well. Oh, yeah. um, but I'm just curious, in terms of your professional background, are you working in that space or you came from that area or is it an interest of yours? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself there? I've 
I've been working in the nuclear research industry in Canada. I work at the Canadian Nuclear Laboratories. Like I'm just a lab tech. I sit in a lab and I operate and maintain several chemical uh, analysis instruments that do an important job for the um, like the CANDU pressure tube surveillance program. So it's just we, we monitor the corrosion rates in the pressure tubes with the instruments that I have in my laboratory. But it also lends well to listening to podcasts while I work because I'm just keeping the machines on and making sure that they're running and yeah, good 50% of my job, I can be listening to a conversation in my ear while making the machines go. So then, yeah, I went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole early 21 after I had a wallet that I just had forgotten about years ago that had a little bit in it. And now that was actually worth a substantial amount. So it was very exciting and got me interested in following further down the rabbit hole. And I recalled hearing about it discussed back in like, yeah, the early days when it was uh, Occupy Wall Street stuff and The Creature of Jekyll Island was a common book that a lot of the people paying attention to the uh, financial crash were interested in understanding money and how it relates to everything that was going on. And yeah, I never fully made the plunge and life went on and then I got into it around the same time that I was also starting to pay attention to the developments of small modular reactors and hearing significant momentum gaining just in the nuclear in general, in the public consciousness and how people are starting to be a little bit more receptive to the idea of nuclear power being a substantial, playing a substantial role in the energy transition that we are that most of the world has embarked upon. And yeah, I think it's just a much better shot to go with nuclear than it is to go with the, to put our, put a lot of stake on being able to predict. And in some cases, some people even think that they'll be able to control the weather. So I think that's a bit of a fantasy and we have to stick with what works and what we know works and we know nuclear works. And I, yeah, I just want to attach Bitcoin mining into it and just supercharge its capabilities to be able to deploy in scenarios that would not have otherwise been feasible. Great. And so for most listeners, maybe we're not, obviously we're lay laymen here and we're not really deeply having researched how nuclear works. So probably what most people are thinking is, oh, nuclear is really expensive or it's maybe the regulations are too heavy to justify nuclear in most countries around the world. So what would you say to that to that person who's trying to understand, you know, how feasible, how viable is this with nuclear? Yes. At the beginning, they are very costly because a lot of capital expenses go into them. And pretty much when you build a nuclear reactor, you have to have everything accounted for, how you're going to pay for your fuel and right down to recycling and decommissioning at the end of life or potentially life extensions if that is something that can be done with your reactor type. Because like right now in Ontario, we're going through a full refurbishment of our fleet. It's going on schedule. It's on budget and everything is going very well. And we expect to have everything back online by the early 30s. And now there's even more interest. Um, Canada, uh, Ontario just announced that we're going to build a new site of four reactors likely at uh, the Bruce C facility and that came out of nowhere like nobody had any expectation that was even going to happen until it was announced three days ago and we're building SMRs which are hoping to be able to mass produce them in a smaller at smaller size but scale them by multiples so you'll be able to reduce the cost of individual reactors by just driving down that marginal uh, construction cost by yeah by mass producing them essentially um on the regulation side, that is tricky because like many people are familiar with the NRC and uh, America is very s slow moving and difficult to get approvals and 
construction licenses to build nuclear reactors. The reactor in Vogel in Georgia is the first reactor to be complete its construction in many decades in America. So that's a very exciting milestone that people are starting to rally around and use that as a momentum point to keep building forward. And yeah, like regulations are in the process of being updated to reflect better like the modern paradigm of these new reactors that we are hoping to build in much larger amounts and deploy them and export them basically all over the world. They'll be safer. The fuel types will be less, um, uh, there'll be less risk of it being diverted for pro- proliferation uh, concerns. And I also think that if they're mining Bitcoin with it, they'll have a much stronger incentive to be generating power than be doing anything else with their, their uranium. So we'll see how that plays out in the game theory of the of the future in this little niche we have here. And yeah, like it's it, it's tricky because the UAE they also just built a large set of reactors with the collaboration with South Korea. So they they their regulation aligned up really well with their industry and they got those reactors built. Like, yes, they do have like a top down kind of command and control type uh, economy where they have, they're ruled by the, uh, the, well, they're the, what do you call them? Like the monarchs, I guess they're not, yeah, I don't even know what they're called there. The, the Sikhs or either way. Uh, so, but, I mean, I guess colloquially called the ruler, yeah, the, like, the, the, so, the ruling know, for example, the ruler of Dubai or the, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, obviously there's a lot of, uh, yeah, I mean to be to be clear, I haven't done a lot of research into the nuclear power that's being used here in the UAE. Uh, funnily enough, but I know there actually is uh, some mining <laughs> happening in the UAE, um, and so that's interesting. But I, I, I'd be curious to hear your view around SMRs contrasted with the what I've heard is called the Generation Three uh, reactors, or like that bigger style of reactor versus what's happening now with the SMR. So, what is an SMR? Why are they? Why is that different? Why should you know? If people who don't really know what that is, can you give an overview there? Yeah, sure. The SMR is basically just a category of nuclear reactors that are built smaller than three hundred megawatts, and then they even fall into more subcategories of like the micro reactors that are only going to be a few megawatts output to up to the Larger ones, I think even the Rolls-Royce one that's being considered is 400 megawatts, and that they're still calling that an SMR, because it's it's larger than the big traditional like 800 megawatt, uh, 1400 megawatt reactors that we're familiar with that are being built like still actively around the world right now. There's I think, like 20, 22 projects ongoing that will be expected to be completed at varying stages throughout the 20s. That's mostly happening with China and Russia, and then a, a few are happening elsewhere. But the SMRs are a new project that everyone's kind of embarking on because there's a race to get at least a few designs to the commercial stage by many different players in the nuclear space, the, all the countries that actively have nuclear programs, um, to get that market share. And so, like right now in Canada, we are proposing six different there's 12 altogether, but six have gotten to like the second stage of their licensing and they've actively chosen locations where they're going to be built. They have a rough timeline of like the first ones late in the 27, 28, and then a few more early thirties will, will start to sprout up and they'll be built in various places. Like one of them's going to be uh, the, the Belladune coal plant in New Brunswick. And that's a large port there that they have. So they're going to mass produce these in a port. They're going to power the port with these new reactors. And then they're also going to deploy them like throughout the rest of the uh, the province. And I th- believe this one's like a 100, 120 megawatt reactor. And it's also a new cooling type that is not 
in like common use that they're just going to use a like a molten salt type of uh fuel structure that's much different than the boiled water reactors that we're familiar with like this this technology is been proven decades ago, but it just never went into commercial development because they they chose one type of reactor and they got familiar with building one type of reactor and the world got really good at building boiled water reactors and pressure water reactors. So that's why we have them everywhere. But now there's a growing need to have a much wider range of applications that nuclear power can apply to beyond just like one large static generating store station. We want to be able to put these all over yeah. northern and Canada. And just zooming out a little bit on nuclear, like zooming out on nuclear in general, do you have any view on why development seems to have relatively stalled in recent decades? That, you know, going back decades, there was so much, there was so much more nuclear development, nuclear power development. Is it because of the association with nuclear weapons? Is it because of, let's say, the big obviously publicized uh, disasters like Chernobyl and Fukushima? Is it just, you know, uncertainty? Do, do you have any view on why there's been a relative stalling there and now it seems the momentum is picking back up? All of the above. And there's been a very active and vocal anti-nuclear movement that has a lot of money behind them that is basically been a thorn in the industry's side since its inception. And there was never really a strong pro-nuclear advocacy movement before just a few years ago and now there's groups popping up all over the place that are promoting nuclear like one of the most active and prolific nuclear um like advocates is an influencer on tiktok named isabel bomaki and she's a brazilian model that just got interested in nuclear power and now she's done ted talks about it she speaks about it uh, at events all over the place she was at the naygn uh, annual conference that i was just at a few weeks ago and it's fascinating to see that there is all and the youthful enthusiasm that is behind this movement because we've been kind of put into this state of fear by this hypothetical apocalypse that may or may not happen if the world reaches a tipping point but it's it's low probability but it's being promoted as the dominant narrative and it's really disrupting a lot of people's like ability to even consider a positive future. And there's so many kids these days that just have this apocalypse like imprinted into their minds and they don't see a way through this. But now it looks like there's finally some movements that are getting behind something that they can actually believe will bring about a better future and a more abundant future for all of us. And it seems that a lot of them have rallied around nuclear as one of the key tools in doing that. So it's a very exciting time. Like nuclear is back okay, in a big great. way. Yeah, that's great to hear. And I think it's an awesome thing. Um, and we can even break down what's going on with SMR, as small modular reactors, and the decrease in costs. The, As I understand, and you, you tell me, right, if you, you, you obviously know this more than I do, but my understanding is most of the nuclear reactors is in the, let's call them the the typical big scale ones, they're almost like one of a kind reactors. And what we're trying to do, what the market is trying to do now with SMRs is almost mass produce them and have them factory produced and have them as a very standardized unit that can be, you know, we can we can churn them out. We can crank these units out there and put them in different locations and we can bring the cost down and dramatically increase the accessibility. Is that, would you say that's a fair summary of what's 
happening. It's almost like we're we're going into the era of you know, maybe not tomorrow, but soon. This kind of mass production is possible of nuclear reactors. That's essentially the game plan. They want to build as many as they can, get as many options on the table that can cover as many applications where we can displace like oil and gas and such like things like like marine transportation, electricity generation, heat generation. We can displace a lot of that with nuclear power. Like there's no realistic way that we're going to completely displace all of our needs for fossil fuels and hydrocarbons in various ways, but then we will also be capable of using them to do things like generating hydrogen and then use that as a base um, like feedstock chemical to produce like other higher order hydrocarbons. And that's when you get into the idea of synthetic fuels. And so that we can, we'll be able to extract these elements, like hydrogen, uh, carbon dioxide, nitrogen from the atmosphere, and then be able to create our own like chemicals and fuels to do with what we will. And that will ultimately be a net negative on carbon emissions. So like that will be a positive advancement instead of using and then, but we can get there by using a lot of like we need a lot of the hydrocarbons that we have now to get us to that point. Like we're still going to need diesel-powered machines for a long time. Like we're not just going to replace everything with electric right away and then just throw away all these perfectly well-functioning machines that could still have many decades worth of value that they can be extracted from them. So it's going to be kind of a, a really push and pull chicken and egg scenario where as we make some of these new advancements with nuclear then we can start seeing how it's going to disrupt our needs for like using hydrocarbons in certain industries but like you said like we're still a good like five years before we start seeing the demonstration first of a kind units then even then we're still a good decades away from really reaching that nth of a kind unit where the costs are really driven down and the expertise are like maximized and we have full supply chains like from the fuel side from just the construction side just everything aligned perfectly like this is a multi-generational project that's being undertaken by the nuclear industry and if we want to keep uh, humanity on the path that we've been on and growing and finding new ways to use this available energy to advance into the stars and whatnot. We, uh, yeah, we're going to need all the power we need. We can get our hands on and nuclear power is going to be a huge, play a huge role in all of that. Yeah. Look, I think that's fantastic. I obviously, I have been quite vocal about my skepticism of the climate hysterics. So I don't necessarily buy their kind of the climate hysteric premise that, oh, we all need to like stop our fossil fuels or whatever. But at the same time, I'm very much pro-nuclear. I'd love to see it. Um, so I think that would be great to see. I just, you know, I sometimes balk a little bit when I was reading, I was seeing some of this narrative of, oh, look, see, we can like reduce the carbon. And to me, it's not, it's not 100% clear that that's a, you know, that we need that. Um, but Nevertheless, uh, as we said, uh, it's, it's, there's some really great benefits that I can see. And I think an, a really interesting point that I was seeing in some of the reading uh, is that historically, we've, as an example, we've seen people compare energy based on this thing known as LCOE, Levelized Cost of Electricity or Energy, I believe. Um, and the problem that I've seen with that is that it's like comparing them as though they're similar alternatives. But the problem with, let's say, unreliables is that they're just they're intermittent. It's not a good comparison. So I've seen numbers where, for example, solar solar's capacity factor is something like seventeen percent, wind is like twenty nine percent, and then nuclear is up here at ninety percent. So, uh, what do you think about that? 
Yeah, it's definitely complicated. And if you speak to any grid managers, they hate it. It makes their job way more difficult managing all of these disparate sources coming in from everywhere. They can just disappear at a moment's notice. You have to become a weather predicting wizard. Like, like even though like they're getting better at a lot of that stuff, you cannot overcome the fact that these only generate power when it's available. And there's this whole push. It's like, oh, we can just, we'll build so much that it generates way more than we need when we don't need it. And we'll store that in batteries. And then those batteries will be available for when we need it. But like, it's just adds layers of complexity. And then that adds more cost to it. And then they don't have the same life uh, and that we were expecting them to have. Like a lot of these solar farms were, they were predicting in 20, 25 years. And like, we're seeing a lot of them starting to decay and break down now. And then you've got the maintenance and the recycling costs. And it, it seems that a lot of the people that are really into wind and solar are very narrowly focused on that period of time where it's generating electricity for free, which is great in many applications that will find a lot of use for wind and mills and solar panels, but not as base load to support an entire complex economy. Like we need stable, reliable power. That's always going to be there. And that's where nuclear comes in. Like there's, it has its own trade-offs in various ways, but like stuff like the waste, it's a very small footprint. It's easy to manage. It's the, one of the most well tracked and like audited industrial byproducts that out of any industry that exists, like the IAEA keeps strict accounting on every little bit of uranium and plutonium that is out there in the world. And so we know where it is. We know where we want to keep it. And we know that we can actually recycle a lot of it. And that will bring, it'll decay the radioactive elements faster if we can continue to process it in new types of nuclear reactors where they can use that as fuel. And then basically their byproduct is can sometimes be fuel for another reactor, depending on the technology stack that we start to develop with these, like the technology and the capability to do it, it exists. It's been tested. It's been proven. It's just, it's costly to bring it all together. If you do not have the demand for it, if you don't have the demand for the power and a lot of uncertainty with when, where you're going to build these things, then the whole supply chain behind it just doesn't come. So we've been waiting for some signals from like like a lot more politicians and nations saying like yes we want to get into nuclear power and then that prompts the industry to be like okay we have the confidence that we have the support of the the politicians and the the that uh, and the the social license is also important as well and we're seeing that momentum come around on a lot more of just the populations be supportive of nuclear power and yeah, it's starting to come together and we're starting to put the pieces together and there's so much potential of what we can do. And that's why often I, yeah, I find myself, I'll, I'll start talking about one tangent and then before I know it, we're like three, four tangents away from what the actual question was, but it's so exciting and there's so much going on right now that, yeah, I can, yeah, I can get lost in a few. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. So could you maybe spell out, so as you were saying, it seems there have been some improvements around, sorry, there's a little bit of a delay here. Um, but yeah, you were mentioning some of the uh, benefits around the waste management um, because that's been a previous uh, bugbear or concern with nuclear uh, that uh, you know there's some waste somewhere that has to be retained somewhere I mean it's not like we're running out of space on the earth somewhere but you know hypothetically could you just spell out what was the historical reality and what's you know today's reality and what's the future reality going to be around waste for nuclear waste management historically it was just keep it in a safe 
safe place aside, shielded. Sometimes they'll use the tile holes or large lead flasks. That's typically how it's been stored uh, on most nuclear sites to date and from pretty much from when they started needing to store it. And over time, the radionuclides, they decay down and they become less radioactive and then it's safer to handle. And then you can step down the like levels of security and like safety protocols that are taken to protect and shield from them. So it'll just it's the natural state of radiation. Just the, the most harmful ones that are radiating faster and quicker, they decay faster and then become less of a concern after like a few decades. So it's basically it's just a waiting game. Um, and then the other thing we want to do is a lot of it still has available energy in it that isn't extracted by the conventional reactors that we use. So we want to develop more technologies like the molten salt and fast breeder reactors that can use spent fuel from other reactors as its primary fuel and just continue to recycle it until you are basically left with inert solids coming out at the back end. And then there's also um, tritium is something that comes up on the news every once in a while because tritium is what the Fukushima has stored up in those, those barrels and they need to release it out into the ocean. But a lot of concern about it is is over exaggerated because tritium exists naturally in water just at very very low concentrations it's the it's the hydrogen with two neutrons on it so deuterium is as heavy water with one neutron and then tritium is just the heaviest form of hydrogen and it passes through the body really quickly so if even if it was ingested it just overhydrate yourself and it'll just flow right through your digestive system and it doesn't have any negative effects it just doesn't have time to commit any negative effects in your in the body so that's one thing that gets over exaggerated when people hear that there's tritium being released into water supplies and the other fact about tritium is that it's going to be part of fuel for fusion reactors so if the tritium is in fact concentrated it's going to be a valuable commodity for a completely different industry that it's going to provide great value to humanity if we can succeed in finally getting like small-scale or large-scale fusion operating at a at a commercial uh, uh, setting. So, and then the rest of it's pretty much just like the solid material that is the reactors were made out of. They they'll be put in a safe shielding container and kept at the uh, kept at a uh, disposal site until they decay enough that they can be safely handled and recycled in a more appropriate manner it's just just people are scared of the concept of radiation so whenever you do hear about radiation nuclear waste there i i believe that most people's minds are often triggered to like the simpsons and because everyone has like that ver that vision of monty burns burying a few barrels of green goop in the neighborhood park and blinky the three-eyed fish and that's tainted a lot of people's understanding of the technologies so it's and it's very difficult to dislodge something that hasn't been imprinted so strongly, even with good, truthful, honest like information about the topic. Many people, yeah, they're just they they learn something and then they will stick to that as their truth. And it's been very difficult because the industry hasn't historically advocated well for itself in the past. Like that's why it's exciting to have like a group of advocates that are completely disconnected from the industry that are kind of off doing their own independent thing. And then, yeah, I forgot where I was going there. 
Back to the show in a moment. The lead sponsor of this show is Swan Bitcoin, and Swan is organizing Pacific Bitcoin again this year. It was a phenomenal experience last year at Pacific Bitcoin in LA, and it's coming again this year in October. So make sure you check it out. Mark the dates in your calendar. It's October 5th and 6th. There are so many awesome speakers who have agreed to come. Now, some of those are yet to be announced, but those who are announced are Lynn Alden, Greg Foss, Preston Pish, Mark Cahodes, Corey Clipston, Alex Gladstein, and so many more to come. There are going to be multiple stages. This is going to be an ex- excellent experience to bring along your friends and family, especially if they are new to Bitcoin. This is going to be the perfect one to bring them along to. So go and check it out over at PacificBitcoin.com. Use the code Lavera for a discount on your tickets and make sure to get your tickets before the prices rise. That's October 5th and 6th in LA, PacificBitcoin.com. And finally, mempool.space is where I go to target my fee before I send a Bitcoin on-chain transaction. Nowadays, mempools are not costing as much as they used to, but it's a great way to keep on top of things and make sure you're up on what's going on. And with mempool.space, you can view the ecosystem. You can see mempools, you can see the blockchain, you can see second layer networks like the Lightning Network. And with mempool.space, you don't have to trust a third party. You can host it and run it for yourself. And the software is open source and out there and available for you. Now, also consider they have a transaction accelerator program, which we'll be launching soon. This is going to be a great new service and Wiz and the team have announced this and they're working on it. And so look forward for more announcements coming up and go and check out mempool.space. And now back to the show. Yeah, so basically, as you were saying, having uh, nuclear influences, for you know, for want of a better word, uh, out there, or pro, pro-nuclear influences, let's say, who are helping uh, win the battle for hearts and minds in the public's eyes and potentially in some of the politicians' eyes as well because like polit- whether we like politicians or not, in many countries around the world, it has to it has to get through them as well. We have to play their um, game, and so right, yeah. Uh, and I think one other interesting benefit that I've seen just from looking at SMRs is this idea that you could have smaller SMRs that are just for a particular community, right? It could be like some comparatively small, you know, quote unquote, only five megawatt SMR for a, a small community, uh, as opposed to trying to go for this big, massive. Uh, big uh typical pressurized water reactor style yeah that's that's the game plan for canada we want to take these little five megawatt reactors and we want to upgrade the entirety of northern canada off of diesel because that will solve many like downstream problems just when the, the power will be reliable and affordable we won't have to have narrow windows where we ship in diesel like like it'll still be valuable and useful up there for operating other machinery, but not for electricity and heat, because that will be primarily taken care of by these little nuclear reactors. And the cool thing about them is you can build them out in modules. So if you want to build five megawatts or build 10 megawatts, build 40 megawatts, and it'll just all be coupled together in a nice, convenient, ordered fashion. And some of them can actually share infrastructure to varying degrees. So you can perfectly match them to the needs of the community, but then you're still going to have a little bit of that overhang, especially if it's in a microgrid scenario where you are not connected to another grid elsewhere that you can just export that electricity to. It's like what Ontario does a lot right now is when we over-generate electricity, it gets exported to 
New York, Rhode Island, a bunch of the other northern states. They'll, we, in fact, pay them to take that electricity because we generate so much that it, that having it in our, our grid disrupts the frequency and, and can be a liability. So it's, it's part of that balancing act. And it's actually one of the, one of the reasons cited that they were able to um, justify shutting down the Indian Point reactor in New York because they were able to they, they import so much electricity from Ontario and Quebec that they were like, oh, we we can do away with our nuclear reactor. And now they've seen the carbon emissions on their grid, in fact, do the opposite of what they had been intending to do by building offshore wind and solar panels all over the state. So that's an interesting, just you, you see these knock-on effects when, when you have power available to distribute to a wider water grid. But then, yeah, when we get into microgrids, that's where you have to start finding ways to balance all of these things together with your load and your demand. There's a small community that I'm aware of that's only, it's a few hundred kilowatts. Like, I don't even think they're a full megawatt. But what they do to balance their grid is they just have a room of space heaters that just flip on and off. And that is that is how they control their load. And to make sure that they're always consuming the maximum load, but then they can shift it in response to just the local residents changing their uh, consumption patterns based, whether it's uh, intraday patterns or like weekly seasonally, like, cause yeah, you get different weather. Like I'm sure where you are in, in Dubai, like you guys have a lot of, a lot of cooling that needs to be done, but then not as much in the winter season. So you have a lot of power that's available for one season, but then it's not completely needed on the other season. So you just, you need something to play that role that can be, off for one season and on for another season. So that's where I see the Bitcoin miners fitting into this role with nuclear power very well, especially on the microgrids. They'll they'll do well on the bigger grids as we're we're seeing a lot of that start to happen with the uh, the project at uh, Susquehanna in Pennsylvania, where with Talon Energy that they've built a modest sized data center there. Is even though it's a huge data center compared to the ones that we're seeing being built out by riot like yeah that one's it's pretty small in comparison and then i'm hearing rumors that there's going to be big ones built in ohio in relation to their nuclear power infrastructure because they're seeing a lot of these liabilities when you're generating you have your baseload generator and then you have all of your intermittent supplies coming in and they can bid zero into like into the price markets and really be disruptive to your base load generator that's now just like okay well that means that you guys get to generate first everything that you can offload and if there's oversupply that liability often gets put on to the the base load generators so it 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 can be disruptive to their economics when there's a lot of different sources that they're competing with for market share and that's been one of the major factors for the not justifying building new reactors in a lot of these places because they're just like well the demand patterns are uncertain because we have all of these other sources coming and going and we're we're trying to become more like using uh, uh, like high efficiency uh, appliances and light bulbs and having people's thermostats be controlled by a central authority like all these different strategies to balance that out but it's it it was not working in the best favor for nuclear power because we also had other things like natural gas goes up and then it goes down and then you have these periods where it's like okay it's not affordable to build the nuclear reactor and then it's like oh well these other power sources are expensive now so now we should be looking at nuclear reactors and then they just they get caught up in these flows and then they also get caught up in the political flows where sometimes especially now when everyone's on their tribe and if one side likes something and then the other side just de facto has to be opposed to it and 
that is something also refreshing is in Canada, we have both of our leading parties are trying to out pro nuclear each other. So that, that just, it gets a lot of the, the partisan nonsense out of the way that we've uh, been afflicted with a lot lately because yeah, Bitcoin is one of those touchy subjects still here in Canada because we have the, the liberals don't like it, but the conservatives have talked positively of it. And so it's become a dirty word when it, whenever it comes up in political discussions. And that is one hurdle that we, that I'm trying to overcome here in Canada by attaching it to our power infrastructure in a much more effective way. And then they'll have no choice, but to see like, this is something good. This is a good that we can use and it provides great value to our power systems, to our citizens that we're going to be able to use it as a way to advance our goals with nuclear power and empowering a lot of these communities that have been with expensive and unreliable power for generations. So we have a chance to really turn things around, but it's going to take a lot of work and it's going to take a lot of, a lot of human capital, a lot of capital, capital and the right incentives, but we're getting there. I see. Yeah. So as you said, it's getting people bought in and that can be winning hearts and minds, getting people bought into this idea of, hey, nuclear would be great for us. It would help us produce more, do more, be better, make more things, etc. Um, and so like you said, Canada has, I guess, the fortunate position of both parties being pro-nuclear. So that's an interesting dynamic. I, I wasn't aware of that. Uh, and so... When it comes to Bitcoin and nuclear, as you were saying, part of the argument pro-Bitcoin here is that a Bitcoin miner can come in and be taking up some of that uh, capacity uh, to help make it economical to build that capacity in the first place. And then I guess the Bitcoin miner can make an agreement to say, I'm going to come in and take up this much capacity until at which time the grid needs it or this other community, they need it. Is that how you're pitching or how you would promote this idea? Or can you explain a little bit about the mechanics there of how does a Bitcoin miner come in to try to collaboratively make that case in line with nuclear? Yeah, my pitch is that they're going to play the role of the anchor. They're going to just be that load that just rides at the margin of supply and, and demand and fills in whatever gap and inefficiencies they might have, whether it's directly at the generator, whether it's at like a transmission substation where, where it's being converted for uh, different distribution pathways. There's opportunities everywhere. And it seems like the Bitcoin miners have set their sights on finding every inefficiency that they can throughout the power grids and plug them up with their little miners. And it's inevitable that that's going to do infect in some way the power managers themselves to see the value that this technology provides. And it's only a matter of time before like these large generators start consulting with or, or hiring this growing number of Bitcoin miners to operate systems for themselves or to just, yeah, to just consult on the best matches and the best strategies to go with. Like I'm sure if Westinghouse called up someone like Harry Sodak and was asking for his advice on how to perfectly match a Bitcoin mining site to one of their new nuclear builds, that's going to have this, this sort of local demand, like someone like him would jump at the opportunity to just get in there and push these, two technologies together in like a way that's going to work bene mutually beneficial for everybody involved. Like we know that as Bitcoin starts consuming more power, like that just makes it more reliable, more secure. And then it just creates that self-fulfilling feedback loop where it's, it's better. So then more people are using it. Then more people want to 
investigate things like Bitcoin mining, and then it makes it more secure. And we just keep going around in this loop where what I'm hearing about and seeing is being built right now is is astounding. The the level of technology that's going to be available to us in the not-too-distant future is going to change a lot of how yeah our relationships with with power systems our relationships with money and yeah this little niche that i found myself in is a pretty interesting intersection between the two of them where now we're we're talking about these big ideas of deploying basically a nuclear reactor prepackaged with a bitcoin mining facility attached to it just as as a standard to just perfectly match whatever we expect is going to happen and then we can also use it to de-risk building future generation in the present although we're not going to have the demand for it we can plan for future demand and even if that future demand doesn't come like say there's there's a hospital project that's built and then all this power infrastructure is built and dedicated and devoted to this new hospital and then the hospital doesn't get built well at least we have the miners there acting as that placeholder until something else comes along or they can just sit there and take that extra power and then it spreads it out across more customers. So ultimately it makes it cheaper for the ratepayers of that local community because they would have otherwise been on the hook for the full cost of the upgrades to their power infrastructure. So it's and it's awesome seeing what's happening in Africa right now with Gridless is just starting to build some of their smaller pilot projects on just like really micro hydro operations that would not have been able to get funding and financing from like a bank or a money lender because of the uncertainty of being able to recoup that full investment. But now the miners just they they can provide that level of confidence that we can we can make these things beneficial to the local community and also be profitable. Because if there's no incentive for somebody to be making money off of these things, often they just don't get built. So then everybody's left in the dark. And so if I yeah I, I think Bitcoin is that perfect incentive to just build power for the sake of building power wherever it's needed and wherever we want to and it's going to get very exciting in the next few years because I the, the the Susquehanna plant and what UAE is doing is just the beginning of this relationship between nuclear power and Bitcoin mining and I'm I'm all for it and I've just yeah I found myself at this very unique niche that's getting a lot a lot more attention very very quickly from the Bitcoiners and the nuclear people too. Because at the conference I went to that was a nuclear-themed uh, for the North American Young Generation in Nuclear, they actually had a presentation by the chief nuclear officer at the Susquehanna plant giving us all a presentation about the d- Bitcoin mining data center that they just built at their site with uh, Talon Energy. And it was awesome because anybody that wasn't paying attention at that conference before, like they are now. And like everybody from the nuclear industry was represented to some degree. There was the the president of the local grid from XL Energy. There was Westinghouse, GE, all of the, the vendors that are proposing new reactors and actively operating in some still around the US and the rest of the world. And yeah, they're they're paying attention now. And so that's very, very exciting. Great. And so part of the case then, in some cases, let's say it means the Bitcoin miner is saying, hey, uh, I'm going to come and set up a, a Bitcoin mining set of rigs in, you know, maybe co-located or somewhere nearby to take that power when you don't need it. And if you do need it, then is the Bitcoin miner going to have to make the case to say, look, I'm just going to turn my rigs off if you need that power? And so I'm curious then, because maybe that's one area where people might be unclear of 
the profitability of that operation for the Bitcoin miner because he now has to turn his rigs off. So does that present a problem for the Bitcoin miner or how do they build that into their business case? That is one of the reasons that a lot of Bitcoin miners are looking into different ancillary services that they can provide to the grid. Like, uh, I expect a lot of Bitcoin miners have been paying attention to uh, what goes on in the Texas ERCOT grid, where they've been showing that some of these miners are actually earning more revenue from participating in demand response programs than they are actually mining Bitcoin. So that is very interesting and exciting development that I don't think many people would have anticipated not that long ago. And so they're they're providing a service. So many of them are contractually obligated to do it. That's part of their power purchase agreement structure. That's that's when you're called upon by the grid when the when it reaches this threshold, then you are to curtail your load. And it's a pretty simple operation to program them to do that to respond to various signals, whether it's the price or the grid frequency. They're just computers, and and in many cases they don't even need to be fully turned off. They can just be. Um, underclocked, as we've been seeing, some of the Bitcoin miners have been tinkering around with how um, how underclocking affects their efficiency. And in many cases, it was showing that the efficiency actually goes up. So you can mine with a less efficient miner when it's at full capacity, but if it's running at like twenty percent, you're actually going to be for the amount of electricity you're using, mining, well, creating more hashes to contribute to the Bitcoin mining. So. And then the other thing that some of them are looking into is using their waste heat as as a potential like alternate uh, profit stream, especially where we're building them up in northern Canada. Like you can use them for any number of operations. I've been seeing people use them for for greenhouses, hot tubs, pools, just space heaters, like the any anything that you need low grade heat for. It seems that they're finding a way to. At, use Bitcoin miners as as a go-between where you're you're going to be using that heat anyways and you're going to be using either a like a gasoline or propane fueled heater for your greenhouse but now you can use an electric heater that's also mining Bitcoin on the side and you were you were going to use that heat anyways so now it's the Bitcoin's actually just kind of a bonus and that's that's how it looks like with a lot of the like the small-scale home miners are doing like they can mine unprofitably but a lot of them are using them as space heaters or bringing them straight into their HVAC system or yeah, or their water heaters. So it's it's very interesting to see all these different developments that some of them may actually start getting commercialized and standardized in some way or another that, that that'll just be a normal thing that you can, if all your heating is electrified, like, like most of Quebec uses electric heating because they have a lot of electricity generation with all of their hydro. So it would make sense to instead use heaters that also mine Bitcoin because that's just a convenient byproduct. Like I, in fact, have a broken dryer that the heating element broke on it. So I took my S9s and I 3D printed a nice little shroud from Crypto Cloaks. And then I ducted them into the back of my dryer. And it's not as quick as it used to be when it was running at the full capacity of the, the heating element. But with two S9s, yeah, you can definitely dry your clothes. So it's yeah, it's just finding <laughs> alternative ways to, to profit and that's that's going to be the game because there's going to be get cheap electricity and then what else can you do to to beef up your margins on the edges and we're going to see different strategies in different jurisdictions whether it's because of climate whether it's because of politics whether it's just because of different load profiles like i'm all for all of this experimentation that's going to happen and it's very very exciting and what will succeed will 
will succeed and flourish. And we'll also be able to test a lot many strategies that we can observe failing so that we can avoid them in the future, as we've been seeing with some of the miners took on too much debt and got themselves into uh, sketchy territory, thinking that the, the number was going up forever and we were never going to have a bear market. And then the miners that had prepared and had in their minds, like, there's going to be a bear market, the price is going to go down, we should be operating for the worst case scenario. And those miners seem to have come out ahead. Like CleanSpark is a perfect example of that. They built infrastructure, they built relationships. And then when the time was right, they were able to scoop up all of these ASICs at fire sale prices. So it's, yeah, I'm here for, I'm here to just watch this game play out and play my small little role in advancing it. It's very, very fun. Yeah. And so uh, when it comes to doing Bitcoin mining, obviously the very, one of the very important factors for a Bitcoin miner is what's your power costs, right? Because that's often the de the defining factor of whether you are profitable or not. And so maybe that's in, that's another question that people may have is that is nuclear energy going to be cheap enough? And of course, I guess in the optimistic case, yeah, absolutely, it's one of the cheapest. But in maybe until you get to that optimistic case, are there scenarios where maybe nuclear costs too much for a Bitcoin miner to get involved in that game? Yeah, definitely the cost is important, but we're seeing that the the nuclear miners are actually getting very low cost electricity. The the guys out in Georgia and CleanSpark, they're they're saying that they're paying like three cents for their power purchase contracts. The Susquehanna plant is is paying only like two cents for their electricity. And then that game theory plays out. It's like we're gonna have a halving coming up soon, so their miner profits are gonna be cut in half. So if the price doesn't go up to match that, there's gonna be a lot of miners that are now just unprofitable overnight. It's gonna be the opposite of what happened when China went offline and, and everyone doubled their profits overnight with nothing changing. So it's and then everybody was plugging in everywhere, and it was just a wild, mad dash to find any electricity that was stranded that you can just plug into. And we saw that it kind of overwhelmed Kazakhstan quite a bit to the point where they left a sour taste in their mouth about uh, how overwhelming it can be when they just flood into your market. Um, but yeah, it's it's very interesting to see the different strategies. And the miners know that this is coming up. So they're all trying to vie to be on that lower half of the margins that when it does happen, that they'll be the ones that get to stay online because we're going to see a lot of interesting changes in, in the hash rate if there's lots of miners that are mining above that margin. And because everyone's competing over the same share of Bitcoin, like it's, it's going to get, uh, yeah. it's going to get uh, wild out there. And I'm, Looking forward to see how it plays out. Like I, right, yeah. I've only been in here for a short enough time. Like this is my first full cycle, so it's it's fascinating to watch and go as deep down the rabbit hole as I have so quickly with many others. Like yeah, it seems like the twenty twenty one twenty two new class of Bitcoiners have gotten pretty fast tracked, like right down the rabbit hole, and it's it's interesting to be a part of. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it's an interesting thing to watch as the cycles play out. I've got, you know, episodes from <laughs> past cycles, let's say, uh, and some, you know, Bitcoin miners have commented that there's this funny dynamic where, of course, yes, the number of new Bitcoins issued or, you know, uh, created every, you know, after the halving is halved. And so what you get is this dynamic where the most efficient Bitcoin miners actually cheering that. It's like a weird dynamic because, in a way, their competition gets kind of wrecked in a way. And so then, if you're in the top, if you're in the top percentage of for those miners, you actually do really well out of that um, because your competition might be switching off, and you are if you have low enough power 
and, and a low enough all-in cost, you know, uh, for for your mining, if you're talking about the operations cost and the everything all together, you're actually doing really well at that time. And then if the and then I think the best obviously is when there's like a bull cycle happening, which has I guess happened uh, normally a little bit after the halving, at least historically. I'm not I'm not saying you know everyone bet your life on on it happening, but if that does happen, if you are alive as a Bitcoin miner at that time, that's when you're really just printing the money, and that's kind of the best time in the cycle for a lot of these miners. Oh yeah, it's fascinating. Like you expect that a lot of it's going to consolidate as we go through these these waves and cycles through the full halving cycles. It will consolidate into the miners that have found the lowest electricity. We'll all start rallying around and gathering around cheap electricity, creating more incentive to generate cheap electricity. It, and it's going to create these strange feedback loops that nobody, I, well, like some people might have seen this coming. Like, I don't know, some of the, the writings of, of Hal, like, he definitely saw it having a major effect on our power systems like all the way back in 2010 so that's it is fascinating that that some people had that vision to what we are experiencing now today and seeing this play out in a really major emergent way that like no i yeah i it's 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 just fun to watch that's and be a part of yeah one other question i've got for you in terms of comparing small modular reactors versus let's say the typical uh, pressurized water reactor like the kind of the typical one that most people might have heard or seen in the movies that kind of thing how are you seeing the developments of those going forward like, are you seeing it like most of the energy in the development is going towards smrs or do you see it like actually both of these pathways are going to grow and we're going to start seeing more of the the big style nuclear reactors in different countries around the world yeah it looks like both options are on the table like for a minute there it looked like there was more emphasis on SMRs and really getting them started and, and off to the races. And there was less attention being paid to building new large reactors. But now that there's been a few successfully finished in the Western nations and that they, we saw that the South Koreans are very effective at building reactors in, in other nations like UAE, that there's been a renewed emphasis on building these new reactors. Like I had mentioned earlier in Ontario, there was no expectation that Canada was going to pursue large nuclear at all ever again and lo and behold ontario's building a five gigawatts of new nuclear capacity at the bruce site ensuring that it stays the largest single like generating station in the world for nuclear power like it's it's going to be a huge facility and yeah no nobody nobody was uh i don't know i guess the people that were intimately involved with it knew but like even People like uh, Dr. Chris Kiefer, who's a, an advocate for nuclear power here in Canada, that's done a great job at, at renewing interest in, in the can-do reactors. Like, even he was surprised by this. Like, there was... And he obsessively pays attention. He's involved. He's talking to a lot of these politicians. And then they announced it. And, yeah, every everybody that, he, that pays attention was surprised by it. So it's it's a very refreshing development in the nuclear space to see that that we are again taking large nuclear seriously again because as far as i'm concerned we need everything on the table and one of the challenges is getting investment getting getting capital that has a reasonable cost to it because when you have a huge capex the difference between six percent interest on that and nine percent interest is billions of dollars like some of these projects the interest alone is two-thirds of their entire like capital expenditures like it's it's absurd 
and that's one of the, the, the things that gets argued about lots with the wind and solar advocates because they see it as any capital that's being invested in nuclear is capital that's not being invested in their preferred infrastructure development projects. So it gets that that seems to be the one place is who can lobby the government and tell a better story to get the support and the financing most effectively. And they it, it seems to be that the one side that has for the last few decades been doing quite well on that front has been losing ground to nuclear and many of them are very upset at this new development and they're very they're, they're, they're very vocal about their distaste for nuclear power taking away any of their potential like uh, subsidies and revenue. Like, I guess we're seeing like some of the Scandinavian countries, I think Sweden and Norway, basically just started announcing that they're they're going to reject new buildouts of wind and solar infrastructure in favor of building nuclear. So that's uh, that's a big win for nuclear, but it's a big loss for everyone advocating for wind and solar everywhere. Which it's yeah, it's a fascinating point you make there around the interest rates because. As you know, I and many others have been saying, funny things happen with interest rates at low levels, right? Because that's from a, from an Austrian economics perspective, we can see there's, that's where malinvestment can happen because they've been given this kind of false market signal. It's like you're flying a plane, but the instrumentation is giving you the wrong signals because interest rates have been artificially pushed low. And so certain projects look profitable when in real reality... They are not, or they would not be profitable because the, the resources required to see those projects to fruition are not actually available. It's just they've been sent a false signal. And so I wonder whether some of that wind and solar, the unreliable energy, maybe some of that, the enthusiasm for that was maybe driven by, lo- by artificially low interest rates. And now that the world is seeing interest rates come back up, at least from the US Fed, Federal Reserve perspective, interest rates have been coming back up to you know uh, up in big increases in the last few years so maybe that is going to drive some sense of a rationalization and maybe some focus more on what's actually economically sustainable right not, not the kind of uh greeny uh, quote-unquote sustainable but actually economically sustainable energy and maybe that includes some case for nuclear uh because now people are being forced to actually deal with something closer to a real interest rate yeah, it forces people to examine the trade-offs a lot more um, objectively and to see what is actually the more superior technology. Like, are you familiar at all with the the strong towns concept? And it was yeah, I've read um, Chuck Marone's book. I thought it was a really great book. Yeah, like and I, it's interesting because yeah, I, yeah, I, I see that like the, what he describes of how how the like the urban sprawl and how they just need to keep building in order to like finance what they built before, and then it becomes a cycle. And then after like three generations, it just starts to collapse in on itself because they've got like three cycles of debt that they're they're working through. I I see that playing out in a similar way in like the the wind and solar buildouts where it's just they're they're just building for the sake of building and then they have to continue building in order to make to cover like the expense and maintenance costs of what they've already built and then it just gets out of hand and it spirals into nothing's profitable anymore and they've everything's spread so thin and they're the markets are all just out of whack yeah, absolutely. And I think from a Bitcoiner perspective, obviously, we are critical of central banking, fiat inflation, fractional reserve banking, which we view as what caused some of this malinvestment. And so we're, we're bringing it back to normal. We're bringing back reality. Economic reality is reasserting itself. And I think it'll be interesting to see over time, uh, you know, as there's this connection uh, between 
economic reality and Bitcoin, I think it's it's all reasserting itself. So I think really interesting stuff. Um, probably a good spot to finish up here. So uh, Ryan, if you have any th- final thoughts, or let's say if there was one message you wanted listeners to take away from this, obviously it's a Bitcoiner-focused audience, what's the one message you wish they would take away? I just want people to have more faith in humanity's capability to adapt and to build and to come out of tough situations stronger and better than ever. Like, I, I expect the next few years are going to be rough, but if we can come out with our wealth and our sanity intact and our infrastructure intact, we're going to be at a, playing at a whole new level for humanity, and it's going to be very exciting, and I'm a lot more confident in the future that my children are going to grow up in now more than I have ever been over the last decade or so. So it's... Yeah, we're, we're in for some good times after some hard times. Fantastic. Well, uh, thank you for joining me, Ryan. Listeners, you can find Ryan online. His Twitter handle is NuclearBitcoiner, but just with no E in the handle. All the links will be in the show notes at StefanLevera.com slash 491. Ryan, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Stephen. It's been great talking to you. So what do you think about Bitcoin and nuclear? Make sure you let me know in the comments, and I'll see you in the Citadels.